everyone. This is Damien O'Connell. Welcome to episode five, season two of Controversy and Clarity. Today, our guest is Major General Dave Furness, United States Marine Corps. General Furness commissioned into the Marine Corps as a second lieutenant in 1987 after graduating from the Virginia Military Institute. Throughout his career, he served in a variety of command and staff billets in the Fleet Marine Force. As a lieutenant, he was a rifle platoon commander and 81 millimeter mortar platoon commander in the 2nd Marine Division with 3rd Battalion, 4th Marines and 2nd Battalion, 8th Marines. As a captain and major, he served as the commanding officer of Company K and the operations officer of 3rd Battalion, 7th Marines, 1st Marine Division. As a lieutenant colonel, he returned to the 1st Marine Division as the G3 plans officer, deputy G3, commanding officer of 1st Battalion, 1st Marines, and as the executive officer of the 1st Marine Regiment. As a colonel, he commanded the 1st Marine Regiment, which deployed as Regimental Combat Team 1 in support of Operation Enduring Freedom 11.1. As a Brigadier General, he served as the Commanding General of Combined Joint Task Force Horn of Africa, and as a Major General, he commanded the 2nd Marine Division. In the supporting establishment, he's served as a staff platoon commander and tactics instructor at the basic school, and as a tactics instructor at the infantry officer course. He was also the commanding officer of Recruiting Station Sacramento, California, the director of the Marine Corps Legislative Liaison Office with the United States House of Representatives, the director of the Expeditionary Warfare School, and the legislative assistant to the Commandant of the Marine Corps. General Furness is currently the Assistant Deputy Commandant for Plans, Policy, and Operations. General Furness has participated in contingency operations in the Republic of Panama and in operations provide comfort, unified assistance, Iraqi freedom, and enduring freedom. I should note that the General's views are his own and do not represent those of the Marine Corps or any part of the Department of Defense. Without further ado, our discussion with General Furness. Sir, I'd like to start off our conversation by looking at your early military education and career, uh, beginning with TBS. So what was TBS like when you went through? Um, it was, you know, it was a tough course, I think, uh, it, but it was much more focused on, you know, the small unit tactics, techniques, procedures, hard skills mm-hmm. that you needed to learn, as well as leadership development. Um, that's what the focus of the course was, uh, they used, and they still do, uh, the vehicle of like platoon level, uh, tactics, uh, as a uh, method to teach leadership. And so, uh, we learned, you know, first, you know, you do squad level weapon systems, you know, fire and movement, fire and maneuver, and you work your way up and, uh, patrolling, platoon support attacks, defense, you know, convoy ops and things of that nature. So, Mm -hmm. but it was much more, um, I mean, you had a lot of problems that were force on force, Mm -hmm. but it was probably, there wasn't a lot of free play. It was more scripted contact to get um, kind of an X check for whatever you were, um, supposed to be doing yeah i was curious to to know to what degree war fighting maneuver warfare um the the concepts that reflect that philosophy were overtly or or kind of baked into the the poi as far as you could tell well going through 
Yeah, I mean, you know, I went to the basic course uh, from May or from yeah May of '87 and graduated in, um, you know, uh, November of '87. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was pre FMFM one. So yeah. um, that part of the institution had not uh, transitioned to maneuver warfare. Mm-hmm. I mean, when General Gray brings it in, he brings it in principally um, as a second Marine division, two MEF kind of phenomenon. And when he becomes commandant while I'm at the basic school, he starts, you know, getting after changing the doctrine and, and making it the way we were going to be trained, organized and equipped. Mm-hmm. But that had not, impacted the POI at the basic course or the infantry officer course for that matter at that time. So. Oh, that's a good segue to another question. That was, what was the infantry officer course like? It was again, focused, you know, it was higher level tactics, mostly, you know, weapons systems that we had not learned in the basic course, you know, heavy machine guns, machine, you know, machine gun and machine gunnery in general, uh, we we focused on uh, mortars, which we had not learned at all. I and mean, we'd call for fire at the base, of course, but you we had not uh, worked the mortar, you know, learned how to fire the mortar, and mm-hmm. and so we did those those type of activities. And then, you know, you you kind of repeated some of the same skills. I mean, we did a patrolling exercise. We did, uh, but our there was a little bit more. Um, the problems were more complex, but they were mm-hmm. still focused on execution. Okay. And, and you were treated at that time, you were treated pretty hard uh, at, at IOC. Um, it was not, you know, we didn't read books. We didn't, you know, we didn't do battle studies. We, you know, we, we trained in hard skills and then, you know, you got more repetitions at IOC mm-hmm. and then you um, and some of your problems were more complex. So during your education as a junior officer, how much emphasis did your leaders place on the things that we encourage in Marines today? Self-study, problem solving, decision making, critical thinking. What you know, to what extent were your COs early on in the fleet? Um pushing that or not pushing that sort of thing? I don't think any, I mean, the first, I mean, I had a good first tour. I was in really good units, but we focused on, you know, battalion level operations and we were a MU unit. So MU SOC at that point. So we, you know, I, I spent uh, a fair amount of time in a Hilo born company mm-hmm. raids and Hilo born operations. So we focused a lot on that. Uh, but as a Lieutenant, you were an executor. You were expected to, you you know everything your platoon did or failed to do and learn how to handle it in the field um you know and we didn't focus on critical thinking we didn't focus on i mean maneuver warfare didn't come out till 89 so um i can remember you know first getting it reading it reading you know maneuver warfare handbook by bill lynn and and thinking well you know this is not how i was trained (laughs) and so 
you start your own personal discovery, but it really wasn't until I got to the basic course as an instructor mm. uh, after the Gulf War in 91 uh, that, you know, you, the charter now at that institution was we have to be able to teach this to new lieutenants. Mm-hmm. And so then in order to teach something, you have to have a better understanding of it. And, you know, all of us were kind of in the same boat. You know, we hadn't been taught this way. And now we're at, they're asking us to do a completely kind of, you know, uh, kind of a new way of looking at warfare in general. And so you had to educate yourself first, and then you could be value added as an instructor for the lieutenants. At that point, that, that you were still doing a lot of the same activities, but what we were trying to do is put lieutenants in position to make decisions, even minor ones, minor tactical ones, and, and really focusing on their ability to assess a situation and come up with a unique uh, solution to the tactical problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, without giving them kind of the yellow sheet, this is the school solution for this problem, which is how I was taught, you know. And it, so that was a challenge as an instructor to kind of break that mold. But we had a lot of great, uh, it, that actually, that uh, four years there, uh, you know, I, I, I was in tactics at the basic course for, about 14 months, then I was an SPC, then I was two and a half years and an IOC instructor, was probably the greatest professional development in my profession uh, of arms that I had throughout my 34 year career. Wow. So yeah, we can, we can dive deeper into that. Um, so you returned to TBS and what's the, you know, what do you recall about the atmosphere uh, being like, and how did things, so you're, you're there as an instructor. So that, that, that's immediately different, but what had changed since going through several years earlier as a student? Well, I mean, we're doing sand table exercises. Uh, so the, the, your classes are much more interactive with the students. Uh, you know, so there, there was a lot more use of tactical decision games, Mm-hmm. Um, to impart uh, concepts and then translate those concepts with that make the TTPs make sense mm-hmm. um, and how you would use them. Um, so it was it was a lot more difficult, I think, to be an instructor there at that period of time. You really had to be on your A game um, because you know you're a lot of this is. You know, new to you too yeah um and so the good part is you, you spend four years in an infantry battalion in, in the fleet marine force you do three deployments you have a lot of practical experience that now provides context for readings that you're doing and, and things start to make a lot more sense to you in, in a in a sports analogy i'll say that the game slowed down a bit um for you know now you're a junior captain but things are making more sense you understand how the parts fit together what's possible time and space factors and now as you're reading about all this where before you could read the same book but it didn't make sense to you because there was no context Mm -hmm. you hadn't experienced those things so it's like you know well how hard can it be to get a 
platoon organized to cross line departure in time. Well, actually, it can be a little challenging sometimes. So those that type of experience adds to your ability to kind of impart wisdom or knowledge to young officers who are struggling with things that you struggled with just a couple of years before. So I think that helps you in your confidence of, okay, I know what I'm doing. I'm starting to become a professional at this. Um, and then, you know, the, the more, you know, the more you want to know the inquisitive nature of it, I think, you know, leads you to keep, you know, reading more, talking about these things with other instructors that you're serving with. And, um, so I think all, all of that created an environment at the base school that was just very conducive to this. It was a really good place to be. I mean, I thought, I mean, they're some of my best friends. In fact, one of them just left uh, a couple, about 40 minutes ago, who had spent a couple days here. He, he was the uh, graduation speaker for an IOC class. He was the director of IOC at one uh, point so and we were instructors there and we were just talking about how impactful that whole experience was the rest of our careers he retired as a colonel um but i i think so you know very intellectually stimulating we had a military uh society that we formed to try an instructor education program that was very challenging um and and so you're trying to grasp all of that, improve your game so you can be a better instructor at the basic course. Because really what you want if you're an infantry officer, okay, um, is to get over to IOC, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, you got to be good because, you know, you're, you're kind of picked to go to TBS, but you're really handpicked to go across the street and go to IOC. And they're only letting people that are intellectually curious, very good at their game, good instructors. So you're trying to improve yourself so you can at least compete to do it. And when you get picked, it's a hell of an honor. But then you, you're in a nine-man you know, organization uh, staff that's really some of the best officers in the young officers in the Marine Corps, and you don't want to be left behind. Right. I mean, you don't do nine to nine. So you're working hard there, but it's so fun. I mean, we're doing battle studies. You're, you're doing additional reading. Um, and then you're learning hard skills too. I mean, you're learning indirect fire machine gunnery or, you know, and, and, you know, you're really getting good at teaching mortar gunnery, you know, and, and then putting it all together in combined arms problems uh, for the lieutenants and, you know, being able to run. I mean, it was probably lieutenants got a lot out of it, but mm -hmm. what I found was it was, it totally prepared me to be just, uh, heads and shoulders above most of my peer group as a company commander, because I knew how to train people at that point. I knew how to set it up. I knew how to logistically support it. I knew how to make it challenging, both physically and cognitively. Mm -hmm. And so that's the kind of training you were trying to feed your organization uh, as you became a you went to school and became a company commander. So, so you hear about maneuver warfare. Uh, it, it sounds like before you get to TBS and IOC as, as an instructor. Um, it, it sounds like you, you embrace it. This is something that um, you are in favor of. You get to the schoolhouse and maneuver warfare is, is still a hot topic and, and people are trying to, to teach it in their classes. 
did all the, you know, did the entire instructor group seem on board with this stuff or was there heated debate? You know, would you guys get into the perennial maneuver versus attrition dichotomy discussion? Uh, I'm just kind of curious um, what the, you know, what the atmosphere intellectually was like in the bullpen and then later uh, IOC with respect to accepting maneuver warfare. Well, I think, Everybody generally accepted it. I think um, there was a it varied person to person as to their understanding of it. And so, if you if you read it at first blush, it can give you the impression that you know firepower is not important. It's all about maneuver. I'm going to make quick decisions, and this person, you know, this adversary is going to keep getting behind me, and he'll just quit. And that's really not what warfare is about. That's not what maneuver warfare is about. But so we struggled with that. I mean, and so how do you teach this? We had a, we had effects when I first got there that was called the surfaces and gaps kind of concept facts. And you put a 250 lieutenants into four man fire teams and you just had them kind of go through the woods. And, you know, there was EIs out there and they were supposed to like avoid contact. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I can remember going through this once and going, you know, this is pretty stupid. Um, <laughs> and I'm not sure what we're learning here. What are we trying to teach them? Yeah. And so there were fits and starts like that. You know, like, you know, I thought the Zen patrol was a great way to kind of, you know, let people to understand the instruction that they were going to receive after the, you know, the patrol. The problem was to get much out of it you got to have a really good instructor. Mm-hmm. And even though all these guys were, you know, and you were putting a, a basic school company, 250 lieutenants in squads. So you needed like 20 some uh, assistant instructors. Yeah. And the, the, when you, when you did operations of that size, you know, that's a squad level, it really put pressure on the organization to have qualified instructors leading those groups of lieutenants. Right. The more you centralize it, you, you know, you get one guy prepared to talk ad nauseum about patrolling, but when you get 25, it, the variance of experience is a problem in the instruction. Mm-hmm. So we, we were challenged with all of that. And, you know, we, we, I think we, we worked through it, but, there were arguments because there were some people that when you first read FMFM one and some of the writings of John Schmidt and, and Bill Lennon, you know, that, you know, they believed any kind of use of firepower to create attrition, to shape maneuver was attrition warfare, not maneuver warfare. Mm-hmm. And it was so, you know, a lot of us with practical experiences, especially coming out of the Gulf war was like, well, wait a minute, you can't, you know, sometimes you got to create a gap mm-hmm. and you use firepower to do that. And so firepower is your friend. And really, it wasn't until, you know, you saw General Zinni, who was Colonel Zinni then, gave a, you know, three-hour PME. Oh, yeah, yeah. That is probably, you know, the greatest thing I've ever watched uh, in my life. But where, you know, he, he comes out on that kind of side. And then you want to read more of, the the history that you know the people that were advocating for this style of warfare uh were referencing but then you find you read it 
instead of just, you know, you look at the footnote, you read that, but you went, wait a minute, you kind of cherry picked that example. And, you know, it didn't always say what they, they thought it said or meant to say, you know, and they're trying to make their argument like we all do. So I just think it's a very complex, like my, my belief now is that, you know, warfare has some immutable characteristics, mm-hmm. you know, there's going to be. And so if you understand that, then you start to understand what succeeds in that environment. Mm-hmm. And I think that was the sea change that maneuver warfare brought was a greater appreciation to those immutable facts, fear, uncertainty, chaos, mm-hmm. um, you know, the people at the lower end of the spectrum with little experience and no staff have to make recognitional decisions and they're not prepared to do that unless you really work hard at that in training the people that have time have staffs and experience they can use analytical decision making they're probably better suited to actually do recognitional decision making but they don't have to do it because they're you know their echelons are moved from the point of contact they have more time and more experience and so you, once you understand all these factors you start understanding how you have to prepare yourself Mm-hmm. And then your your leaders, your subordinate leaders and your organization to excel in this environment. Sure. And I think it brings clarity to what works, what doesn't work. And the more than you read, the, the greater your appreciation for those factors that when you do get into no kidding combat, you know, now years later as Lieutenant Colonel, nothing is really surprising you. Mm-hmm. And you feel a confidence in your ability to make decisions and, 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 and you've created an organization that uh, is, is more decentralized, balanced, combined arms team, solving problems at the point of contact and creating tempo because of it. And those are hard organizations to be sure. uh, historically. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, <clears throat> but I think that's what, you know, they, I think it was the intellectual renaissance, but also a training renaissance hmm. that kept um, creating conditions where you just were making, uh, you know, you were training better because you understood what you were training for better, if that makes sense. No, it, it doesn't. You would, you had mentioned something earlier uh, the Zen Patrol, which I think I've talked to uh, Colonel Pesnola about. I think he was the right. instructor. He taught in me. You're right, right. Yeah. If you so, I think most of our listeners will be unfamiliar with this approach to teaching patrolling, or at least helping to set up um, teaching on patrolling. Could you just kind of describe what Zen Patrolling was all about, how it worked? Well, I mean, when you're trying to create judgment in leaders to make decisions. I mean, you can teach them like, okay, here's a patrol that's 14 people. Here's how, you know, and it's just kind of, but until they go out there, it's hard to get your conceptual head around what you're actually talking about. So what we, we did was we, before we taught them any classes about patrolling, they had no, they they had done squad in the offense, but now we're going to do this thing for patrolling. So you would just take them in the woods and, you know, you had 25 squads out in a kind of a constrained area. So you were going to bump into other people, mm-hmm. but there was no preordained contact or route or whatever. So it was like, okay, you know, we're going to move out in this direction. Okay. 
how are you going to move through the woods? And, you know, they go, well, we like, how could you do it? And you, so without any key, like they didn't have a class that taught them, here's how you do it. Yeah. You're asking them, okay, you have 14 people, you have thick vegetation. How are you going to move through it? Yeah. And, and, and so at each step you would, you would come in contact with something. You'd stop them and say, okay, now what is this that you're like, we're here now we're looking at, you know, what is like, say, a cross-compartment danger area. Mm-hmm. You know, we're on the high ground. There's low ground down there, a stream. There's more high ground. What is that? Well, and, you know, what are we looking at? Well, we, we got to go downhill. There's a stream down there, and then we got to climb a hill. Okay, where's the risk in moving through there? And somebody would say, well, you know, if somebody's on that high ground, sir, you know, they could, you know, you're down that low ground, it would be hard to, you know, they'd have an advantage firing downhill at you, and you'd be firing uphill, and that would be tough. So you wouldn't want to get caught down there. Okay. Well, how do we make sure we don't get caught down there? What could we do? And you just, it, it's a series of educated questions that gets them to think about, well, this is really just, I mean, because patrolling doctrine is common sense from moving through the woods and trying not to die, mm-hmm. you know, like, so, uh, or the hunting of man, right? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you want to have an advantage. So if you say that, so you want to make sure that you don't bring the whole force down there until you know that far side is secure, right? So you may want to send a little group out there. And then if they get contact, we're overwatching them, we're firing, they're below us, and then they withdraw and we don't go that way. Right. Okay. And so you just, and then if you get contact, you let them figure it out. Like, and then afterwards you say, okay, what happened? Well, you know, he saw, we saw this guy because he was moving well, what could we have done if, 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 if he could have alerted somebody instead of just keep, keep moving, which eventually then both people were moving. And then it was kind of chance contact that both people saw each other at the same time. Then it was a firefight. Yeah. But one part of the unit saw it. What could we have done? Well, if we could have got in line. We could have ambushed. Him. Right. So you start, you start talking them through this. And it was, you know, a half day. So six or eight hours you're out there doing stuff like that. You come back the next day, they're in the classroom all day learning about the techniques and procedures of patrolling. But now they have an experience and, and they wrestled with some of these problems. So now what you're telling them, hey, here's a common formation. It's like, hey, that makes sense because shit, it's a, it's a column with, you know, kind of a fire team wedge and you know, flankers, you don't want to, you want to make it a bigger formation, but it's hard to do that. They have to keep coming in and out. And we talk because we, they experience all that shit. Right. So you give them a concrete experience. They get to go out um, in the woods without any training. It sounds like in patrolling. And then along the way, your, you know, the, the, the instructor is asking questions, probing questions, Socratic questions, um, and a lot of it kind of sounds like discovery learning. The, the students are kind of figuring it out as they go. There is some guidance from the instructor, and then that sets them up. That gives them a, a reference point of experience when they get to the classroom, and the, the students can now point at something and go, oh, okay, now I see why we do it that way, or oh, yeah, that would really be, that technique would have been, or that formation would have been really helpful as right. we were trying to come to grips with the problems that we face in the field. Does that, is that kind of a fair yeah, summary? It's just basically an, an adult learning methodology. 
you know, for, cause these guys are all college graduates. They're smart right, people. Right. So you don't have to teach them like they're first graders and you just provide them a little bit of context, some discovery learning events that helps then what you teach them in the classroom. They soak it in much faster, internalize it much faster. And now they're able to actually employ it because it makes sense to them because they, they flailed around out there trying to figure this out for themselves and they're, and, and they like it, it just make it helps it make sense. Sure. More sure. familiar that the knowledge is chunked faster mm-hmm. to those neural strings that help them kind of accelerate through the decision-making process as it relates to this environment and these TTPs. And I, I'm, I'm guessing that again, the key to that sort of approach working is solid facilitation. It's it's having good instructors. And if you don't right. have those, right. what we're describing here is not done at the basic school. There's no Zen patrol. I, I think that was something that was when you when you guys were there, I don't think it was ever resurrected. And I, I'm curious, you know, do you recall any discussions? Well, I, the, the, it, it went away while I was there. And really? It, and the discussion was, we just don't have the depth of instructors to actually make it like all 25 squads get the same experience. Right. right. So, Like if you had me or Mike Pesnola leading the squad, those guys got a shitload out of it. There were other people, you know, cause you had the, on the staff, when you had so many assistant instructors I and mean, you had non-combat arms people teaching the class. Yeah. And then, so then the discussion was, well, this is the basic course. So if you have to be a combat arms officer or even an infantry officer to teach this course, is it too, is it, too much you know too complex Mm -hmm. is it above being the basics Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so we were just trying to do it from an adult learning methodology perspective of 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 trying to make the learning occur faster with more depth and retaining more uh, because of the way we taught and we were trying to always look for ways to do that Mm -hmm. so you know doing things like you teach in a classroom like and then okay break go to you know break out in your small groups go to the sand table and we're going to do a tdg okay come back in the bleachers and sit down with the instruction and then you know always trying to break up the dynamic of you know one over 250 lecture not very great at retaining that information um so that that was the as we started an instructor education program and you started reading about well, how do you educate people? <clears throat> and, and that was the thing that generally, you know, the maneuver warfare, that it was, it was acknowledged that now, even though the ratio might've been, you know, 20% education, 80% training, there was an educational aspect to what we were doing at this entry level training institution. And so we needed to understand how to some educational methodologies. That also brings up another question about, TDGs and, and their facilitation. So it sounds like both at TBS and IOC while you were there, TDGs far, f- formed a, you know, a, a significant part of um, your teaching toolkit. Um, you, you were also there when uh, Mike McNamara was there. Is that correct? That's correct. So I know he, he evolved sort of his own approach to TDGs, one that went beyond straight decision-making and, also looked at getting people to understand um, how 
how one another's minds worked, you know, sort of the, I think he called it the mind melding, this, this, this aspect of maneuver warfare that um, is often termed implicit communication. What, what kind of, you know, how often were other people using that method? Was the purpose of the TDGs focused on decision-making or were there focus points you guys were trying to hit, you know, the, the squad O TDG, there, there are certain things about squad tactics we need to draw out. I'm just, I, I guess I'm curious about how you guys approach. Well, I think, you know, so, some people, like, I think the first saw Mike do this with a set of dice, you know, he, and so you would, he would start the TDG. Okay. And once the guy had a solution, here's one, here's my estimate. Well, first of all, he developed a class called the decision, which at IOC was the first class we gave him. And it was a foundational thing at, to try to instill upon the officer that you were, in fact, one of your roles in this was you were a decision maker, understanding different aspects to decision making, you know, you know, showing them here's an analytical model, the staff planning process, recognitional models look like this, and this is how they work, and this is how you do them, even though you don't realize you're doing that, you know, this is what you're doing. And so now you do a TDG. You know, you would present them with a situation. You're the platoon commander. You know, come up with your estimate and your course of action. And then they would take five minutes. Okay, you brief your thing. And, you know, you they brief their estimate. And, hey, their estimate was their estimate. Okay, now the, the linkage was, did their decision and the estimate, link, I mean, did it make sense? And did they use good combat? you know, like they used to write TTPs, there was good judgment there in application and aggressive, you know, uh, pursuit of what we call, you know, the, the basics of whatever was squad tactics, platoon tactics, what have you. But then you would start saying, okay, you've crossed the line of departure. You start to receive fire from this hill. What are you doing? Well, I'm going to do this. I'm, I'm going to deploy online. I'm returning fire. I'm going to try to develop a situation to assess is, you know, what is that? It's an OP, whatever. Okay. You're trading fire, you know, pick a number, uh, four. Okay. If it's a number greater than four, you know, you've got a person killed here or, you know, if, it, if it's less, you know, you ran them off the hill. Now you're not receiving fire anymore. So you could develop a situation and, and ask them to continuously make micro decisions of a problem of like well and then inject chance into it which is everywhere in warfare sure. but, but the other thing was if they were you like if they made a good estimate and they came up with a good scheme maneuver you know you wanted to show them that hey look you, we're not going to play the omnipotent enemy here and i because you, you know once you know a guy's plan you can thwart it well, you thought it was coming over there, but actually we're here and we're hitting you in the flank with enflating fire and you're all dead. Well, he's not going to learn anything through that. Right. So you kind of draw out these examples and iterative faces, injecting chance and forcing him to adjust his plan with very little information and under a time constraint, which is exactly the kind of thing that you end up doing for real at that level. Yeah. So no, that's, that's fascinating. And, and it, the, so I, I've, I've termed this, uh, maybe I got it from TX Hammis, who wrote an article about McNamara's approach, but the, the McNamara method and this idea of using TDGs to get people to share their estimates and then use a coin or use dice, as you said, sir, to inject chance and include additional decisions. 
So I think right. most TDGs, you know, they, they end in a, in a decision, you know, what, what are you going to do? What's your, what's your approach to this? But most of the time there's no carrying out, there's no execution, but with this other approach, you do get to execute and kind of see it. If, if you so choose and you've got the time, see it to its, its logical conclusion and make additional decisions along the way. So I think it's a really powerful method. And I think, you know, what you have to do as a leader, as you become more, uh, you gain more professional knowledge is that, I mean, you can use different aspects of all of that in a PME program. Like you can start, you can have a, a TDG that's kind of a mechanized uh, attack and you can get people to look at an estimate and organization of forces, which is human maneuver. Okay. Here's my estimate. This is the way I saw the situation. Here's how I organized my forces. This is why I did it that way. Okay. Stop. Okay. Let me give you a, a battle study, you know, France, 1940, you go through that. Then you can actually give them a more at the end of that break. Okay. Let's take uh, 10 minutes. Then it's a map problem that leads to where you have a red cell that comes up with, you know, the enemy, Koa, you merge them, you use the dice, flip a coin, those kind of things, and you you go through a few turns in a, in what becomes a war game. Yeah, exactly. You, you, you can do all of that in a two to three hour session, and you've used kind of a variety of all those things to drive certain points home. And that's how we did it at the like. So if you're looking at you know attack, you want them to understand how to employ their weapon systems so that they maximize. Uh, effect of the target the ground uh and and the system itself and then support the maneuver to so you 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 know knowing how to close with the enemy you so that's the squad attack is squads you know very you know i'm gonna have a fire team uh, hey is it you know you're just gonna break the fire team off or you're gonna organize it so that maybe the fire team has all three saws in the squad right, right. okay well that's an option you could do that what's the drawdown well, then you don't have any automatic, right. So you could talk about these things uh, from, you know, to do it or, you know, I'm just going to attack fire movement right straight up the fucking gut. <laughs> okay. You can do that. What's the, what's the positive is that simple, easier control downside. Okay. Maybe, you know, if you go in teeth to teeth, but you know, you can do a frontal attack on the flank. You don't even know you found the flank and you found the flank because <laughs> that's war, you know, and, uh, so as you become more professional, you can kind of use all these things to drive a point home. Yeah. You know? I, I'd like to talk a little more about IOC. So you're there when then major John Kelly is the director. Um, no, um, he, no. Was, he was, no, he was, I, I got pulled over there by uh, major Allen who left soon afterwards. Yeah. And then it was major Tom Sward and then major Dennis green were there when I was an instructor. Okay, so you, you've so was was Alan? Where was Alan in the um, in the chain of command when you were there? Well, when I was a TBS instructor, when I first got there, he was the director of IOC. There we go. Okay, and then I was at the basic course, and but you know, Alan was, <clears throat> uh, you know, had uh, we would have these meetings and present papers and everything. So Alan uh, and Alan had been the three of the first battalion that I was assigned to. Mm. so i mean i think he was let's say instrumental but he had a, a hand in getting me selected to go over there but then right before i even got there that he had left to go to command and staff college and then 
you know, Tom Sward was there. So. Got it. No, that, thank you for clearing that up. Um, while you're at IOC in 1993, you wrote an article with uh, Captain William Weber called the NCO in Maneuver Warfare, and it won first place in the Chase Prize Essay Contest in the Marine Corps Gazette. What, what was that article about? How much of that still applies today? And, and beyond that, what led you to, to write it in the first place? Well, I mean, I, I had a great experience in my first unit with a, a CO, uh, Captain Chris Stokes, who really we focused on training our team and squad leaders, you know, to be, you know, to increase their proficiency and, you know, weapon systems, employment. And either we didn't know what we were doing, but we were also making them better decision makers. And so as I started studying this and we started talking about subordinates and, and speed at the point of contact, well, most of that <clears throat> is part and parcel to your squad leaders, your staff sergeants, your, your team leaders being able to translate orders into action and understanding how to do that. So we looked at how we were, you know, we, these are things we talked about. And Bill Weber and I were, you know, we, we, he was a tanker and I was a grunt. And, and we, we were like, you know what, we need to, as an institution, like if it takes, you know, 26 weeks at TBS and 11 or 12 weeks at IOC to produce a platoon commander, um, we're not preparing our young leaders who actually you know, need, are, are the people at the point of contact that we want to make these decentralized decisions to increase rapidity of action and gain tempo advantage. We're not training them well enough. Mm -hmm. and, and we're not educating them at all. So we need to do that. If we're going to realize this, we've got to, now we're, we're I'm currently right now, we're, we're still wrestling with this yeah. as we talk about how to mature the force to be able to execute the commandant's vision and we're like, well, look, you know, we're talking about exp extending entry-level training for enlisted infantry Marines to 20-week course. Right. Okay. Uh, we have become like the infantry uh, small unit leader, ISALC course. Yeah, yeah. And IULC for staff sergeants is, you know, a game changer uh, with respect to training and education. I mean, these folks we we did a we just completed a kind of a we called it the enders uh, game project but where we took selected leaders for a year junior marines uh, lance corporals brand new corporals oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and trained them for a year before we brought them back into their unit you know they all completed isoc they did like hundreds of attacks i mean all this great stuff that we packed into a year of training to see if you could bend the curve of experience and maturity and give yourself a, a the kind of leader that you want at that point that's what that article was about and um i still think it's valid and, and part of what we recommended i think in the article if i can remember <laughs> is that you know like when a person says hey you got the cut and swear to be a corporal okay we wanted an additional time like it was like, okay, you've got to cut and score. Do you want to be a corporal? Because if you want to be a corporal, you got to sign this contract for three more years. We're going to send you to school for, you know, 
three, six months, and then we're going to put you back in a different unit. Or do you want to do that? Right. There's no harm in saying, no, you'll just be a Lance Corporal yeah. and ride out. You know, but if you want to stay in and you want to be a leader, here's the requirements. And then we would educate and there would be a school that would do that. And it would be a great course. It would, you know, have you know, instructors would be handpicked and just like IOC and you would put them through that. And then those would be the people that would lead your teams and squads. Yeah. And it would make a lieutenant's job so much easier because now you're talking from a common data plane. And so you're trying to build intuitive communication institutionally. Okay. Right. So that's what that article is about. Um, but we're still wrestling with those same issues three, four years later. And, you know, there, no one's been bold enough to say, you know what, we have to invest more. Now we've made huge strides in enlisted PME mm-hmm. since that day, which was really, I guess, you know, the, the desire, the end state desired was that. So maybe that contributed somewhat to the discussion that led to that. So we're in a much better place now, but I still think there's much more to go. Yeah, no, and I'm 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 watching with uh, great interest what what's happening at the SOIs. Uh, these discussions about extending the POI. Um, you, maybe you saw the article recently of SOI West including chess in in the POI to try to try to get Marines, particularly ITB, I think is where they were doing this, to try to get infantry Marines away from this this notion of being an automaton and just doing what you're told and um, not thinking whatsoever. Uh, and I, I, I applaud SY West for that. I think it's a great step in the right direction, but um, I want to see TDGs, decision forcing cases, war games, these sorts of things. I think, um, I think those are going to be a lot more beneficial than something as abstract and two dimensional um, and I think limited as, as, as chess is, don't get me wrong. I think there, there's a lot of benefit to using it, but um, I think there might just be better tools out there, especially with such little time, even, you know, even 20 weeks um, is not, I mean, if you look at the, the, you just look at how much there can be taught or how much stuff you can put into a POI. Um, well, the, the other thing I think is that you need to really determine what's critical yeah. and actually get more reps at those things. Right. And, and try to get to, you know, as close as you can to mastery before you kick them out the, uh, with degree from, from the institution. So I think we're, we're going to wrestle with all those here in the coming year or two. Yeah. Uh, and uh, hopefully we'll get it right. No, it's, it's, uh, it's fascinating stuff. So I'd like to, turn to the topic of, of maneuver warfare um, in the fleet. So as a commander in your units, how have you tried to empower your junior leaders and, and create a culture conducive to war fighting, to maneuver warfare? Well, I think, you know, when I, when I left the basic school, my understanding, uh, what I believed and still do for, for, for the most part is that the absolute foundation of to be able to execute maneuver warfare and like maneuver warfare is a a style of fighting that places um a huge requirement for excellence at the you know team squad platoon company level you know even battalion so if you you have to be excellent at 
like you're like employing your weapon systems across the time continuum and across the range of operations. And, and that takes a lot of reps. You want mastery of that. And then as you do that, you inject, you always are trying to build, uh, you're doing TDGs to, and decision forcing cases as part of the, you know, the training experience, like we will always, even if I had a range, you'd always create, you build a sand table and one of the rotation stations was you're doing TDG. So you always wanted to impress upon these guys that war, you got to be, there's hard skills. You got to be a master at, right. You also have cognitive skill development that's required to be able to employ those hard skills appropriately at the right time and in situations that are appropriate. And so yeah. you're, you're trying to teach that to, to young, very young first term enlistees at the Lance Corporal Corporal level. You're trying to make your sergeants, you know, better at their game, staff sergeants. You're educating your lieutenants to to have a better understanding than the basics that they come to you with. Right. And you develop them. So there's a lot of like I'm doing, you know, PMEs with my lieutenants. I'm also doing it with my squad leaders. We're doing a lot of hard skill TTP training. Mm-hmm. Uh, like when I was a rifle company commander, I, I was in 29 Palms. We did fire and movement. Every week we went to the field, live fire, making this is a hard skill. You have to master this. We have to be the best at it in the world. So how do you move from A to B under the support of your own weapons, suppressing and moving, using micro terrain? Um, the whole nine yards, buddy teams, you know, fire teams and, and the base unit so that, you know, you, this is kind of you gain contact, you're, you're, you unmask firepower from probably a movement formation to a combat formation. You are adjusting fire to the width and depth of the target and then moving into it, closing and getting to the point where you're destroying the enemy. How, you got to practice that all the time. Yeah, yeah. Now you're also practicing, you know, squad supported attack uh you and we would do stuff like i would take a big range that was really designed for a company and i would do squad evaluations where i'd give the leader okay here's your order he had to do an order he had to do a reconnaissance complete a plan issue the plan rehearse okay and you gave him a mortar squad a machine gun squad a rocket squad okay and he had employment right yeah yeah. and so what how are you going to do this and he had to factor in, like, I can't, you know, put my mortars here because they'll shoot overhead fire. I got to get them out here. This is the angle. So you're teaching him battles, you know, real geometry right. issues of any of this. But he's coming up with a plan. And then you're like, okay, that'll work. Let's go. And then you live fired it with targets that recorded hits. Then you, t- you know, they consolidated an objective area. They went through safe. Okay, here's your evaluation. This is how you did. And then, so there's a lot of those hard skills that you're doing. But it's also your, your, you know, you'll go on a range to shoot weapons and a couple of these will have TDG stations run by one of your lieutenants that's teaching them a patrolling TDG or a defense TDG, uh, you know, um, and you're and then you're doing no kidding PME stuff. You're giving them stuff to read. We discuss. And so all of this is part and parcel of training the organization to be able to fight the way you want to fight. Right. Um, 
And then you just have to create a culture where you you're always telling them, I want you to make decisions. I want you to take action. I want you to have a bias for action. And then when that happens, you know, they, they screw shit up because they did all that. You got to, you got to critique it in a way that says, Hey, that's great aggression. That's great. You know, that's exactly what I want you to do. Here's some things to think about next time. Boom, boom, boom. So that you're not crushing the guy's incentive to take action, but you're also giving him more things to think about in the judgment and application aspect of it so that, uh, you know, you're building a better leader at, at the same time. Yeah, no, there's, there's so much good stuff here, sir. So one thing that I, I find really interesting is, um, how even in the field, you are creating opportunities for things like TDGs. I think that's, that's a, I don't know how many other commanders are doing that today, but um, it's an interesting thought. So while you're, while this part of the company or platoon is, is running this range or this lane, another part is, you know, doing a TDG around a sand, a sand table and they're doing this out in the field. So well, you know, we also like we like the other thing I did is we use TAC war boards in IOC. Uh, TAC war is a game the Marine Corps bought. It, it was a programmer record. It was these big, you know, it was like the fold a gap in Germany is the terrain, but they had maps with it, little things. It it had the op four was like a Soviet motorized rifle rifle. So you could organize it any way you wanted to. When we like I you I you know I signed it out from training support. And put it in the company office, and we use we played. I and I had all the stuff from IOC, and we would run squad leaders and team leaders and lieutenants back through, you know, all these te- these things we'd done in IOC to teach, you know, anti armor, you know, hallmark law principles, or you know, a variety of things because I already had the orders and I could do it real quick. And we would practice those things, and I took that shit to Okinawa too when I deployed. And we did it in the company office there. And we always had the TAC board up, you know, and, and I said, look, I'm doing this for you guys. Lieutenants, you need to do it for your people. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so then you're watching your lieutenants do the same thing. And you're trying to make sure that they understand that's a requirement of being a leader. You got to train your subordinates in these skills and decision-making is one of these skills. And so then you're, you're kind of watching how they do it, you know, and then they go away. Hey, get, that was good. Maybe think about this next time. Hey, inject the dice, you know, you know, that can chance talks about uncertainty. Okay. sir. you know, and, and, and this is all there's, so there's a lot going on in the organization trying to make it a better war fighting organization. And I'm curious, sir, what was the reaction of, of your Marines to this? Because a lot of what you're describing, I think would be, you know, it should be standard at any unit. I know plenty of units don't do things like this. Um, yeah. so how, yeah, how did the, you know, was there, was there hesitation or reluctance from many of the Marines? Like, you know what, you want me to make decisions? Uh, you want me to think now, um, or did they really gravitate toward it and go, sir, let's do more of this stuff? Well, I think they, they enjoyed it. I mean, it was just, I, I didn't really give them a chance, uh, an opportunity to say whether they wanted to do more of it or not. They got more of it. <laughs> You're going to do time. it anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, this isn't a democracy like my, okay. You know, Sergeant Major used to say, "We we protect democracy. We don't practice it." Um, <laughs> so, I mean, I, I think they enjoyed it. I mean, I, I've always had units that, um, you know, at the company battalion level, and you know, a lot of reenlistment, you know, high reenlistment rates. People enjoying, you know, coming to work and being part of the organization. You know, uh, you know, we were, 
you know, we had a, our, our super squad won the regiment uh, and division. And when I was a company commander, um, so, uh, you know, I think they, they thrived in it and excelled and thing, you know, and we still had our, I mean, we weren't perfect by any means, but, you know, and then, you know, you become a battalion commander and, you know, uh, every, I got, I was a battalion commander a little bit before the dreaded, you know, program of instruction for pre-deployment training, which was spoon fed to you. So I had some, I, you know, I, I could do some of my own ideas, which was fortunate, but, um, and I got two deployments. So, mm-hmm. um, that was fortunate too. Uh, it's just a lot more experience. And I was a battalion commander for like 34 months. Um, wow. so, you know, there's a lot of, um, growth you do there, but said, you know, you know, we, you show them the right way to do it by doing it like that. So like you run your PME program, and you are reading books and you're doing TDGs and you're giving classes. And, and then you're telling them like, Hey, look, I expect you to do that too. Right. So, you know, when you have one of your sessions, I just want to sit in the back room and watch. Right. And you do that and you give them feedback. And, and so you're trying to create a culture where you're trying to get better every day. You're trying to be an expert. Mm-hmm. And that's what I really think maneuver warfare really is it's it's institutionalizing military excellence mm. and all you know because that's what you know that you know we always point to the german example and the germans were really the first that had kind of a, a holistic way of approaching this phenomenon and they you know they kept their units together they were drawn from you know the, the you know regions that were homogeneous there's a lot so they built they really were so far ahead of, of U.S. forces and developing practices, you know, in, in the HR world, so to speak, that were would promote cohesion and then, you know, keep the unit together, hard training. They were experts at, hey, if I'm a mortarman, I can put mortars on the target. I can do it in a variety of different ways. And, you know, if you tell me to suppress, I, I, know, I know exactly what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, your FOs are trained. Your machine gunners are trained. Um you're, they're fit. They can march a long way. And so that's the kind of force that you can do a lot of things with. Yeah. Like you can push them through really rugged, restrictive terrain days on end without rest to have a decisive battle at a tempo that the enemy can't really deal with. And then you can shatter them. Mm-hmm. And because you're appearing someplace that you shouldn't appear for six more days, but you're there then and, and you're in there at you're you're using a ton of firepower and it's all accurate and it's lethal and you're, you're just relentlessly uh, closing with and breaking through and pursuing and, you know, moving quicker to another engagement, keeping this guy constantly off, off balance. Right. But you, but you have to be so good at those lower levels to be able to do that. It's not just Rommel's great idea. And all of a sudden, wham, it works. No, I mean, there, there's the building block from, the team all the way up to the division, it, it's got to be, you know, a nested, you know, like I used to say at the at second division, a combined, you know, nested combined arms team of teams, mm. you know, and and if you know with, you know, a, a you know, here's we all understand intent, two levels up and two levels down. We we have 
focus of what we're trying to do. Everybody's well-led, everybody's fit, everybody's an expert with their system, and we know how to employ them together and yeah. kind of a symphony of Mars that they create by that. And we're good at it. And so really that's, I've evolved to like, what's maneuver warfare. Then the special about it, except it's, it's hard to be, create that culture of military excellence and right. to be a no kidding elite unit. Yeah. Uh, it takes far more time than we give anybody with our deployment cycles to do. And if, if I would say, why has the Marine Corps, been able to execute maneuver warfare across the service, I would say the biggest distractor is we don't leave people in billets long enough. We don't, our units aren't cohesive. Uh, the depth to dwell that we uh, don't enjoy uh, doesn't facilitate enough time to do all this. Well, this goes back to your, your HR comments, right? right. That you, you need to have a, I think a manpower system that allows for all of those things. It keeps people in positions longer yeah. that allow units to stay together longer and, and some of these other- al gray told me one time when he was my ball guest of honor uh, last, uh in 2019 and he said you know when i did maneuver warfare i wanted to do the personnel system and i thought it was too much change in too short a period of time so i didn't do it in retrospect that's the first thing i should have done no kidding yeah, I mean, it's coming from someone like Al Gray. That's that's a pretty big statement, right? And I and I, you know, I think and so I've been and, and not just me. Me and a few other people have been saying, like, you know, Commandant, okay, got it. You're transforming the Marine Corps. If you want this to work, we need an entirely new personnel model. Yeah, and if we don't do it, and you just want to try to get efficient around the edges. Um, you're going to be like maneuver warfare and you will be disappointed in what you'll be able to achieve. So, and I'm talking, I mean, big changes, like, you know, and again, all designed to get, you know, more mature leaders with more time with their units, longer training periods, less deployment. Um, so yet you become truly excellent at what you do. And, can fight tonight anywhere in the world at a moment's notice because that's how you develop leaders. That's how you train organizations. That's how everything supports that goal. Yeah. And we don't have that. We've never had it as long as I've been in the Marine Corps. So this, this ties to a question uh, about uh, something that, that the previous commandant general Neller had mentioned, and, and he called for rejuvenation of maneuver warfare. You've talked a little bit about maybe what some of that rejuvenation would look like, but if you could, if you could talk more about it and, and what problems have you seen that you think led general Neller to this assessment that maneuver warfare somehow needs rejuvenation? Well, I mean, it'd been 30 years since we've, you know, kind of looked at the doctorate and whatnot. And, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of people talk about the character of war changing dramatically. So I think the first thing we, we probably need to do is, is take a look at the, you know, MCDP one and rewrite it. Um, so that would be job one. Uh, job two is, it, you know, I don't think anybody. I mean, if you look at the the most elite military organizations that we have, everybody will give you soft, and and they enjoy some of those personnel stability issues that I, I alluded to earlier. Yeah. And so, if you understand that, and they train all the time, and 
So you have to create an environment, a standard across the Marine Corps that, okay, units are probably four to one depth to dwell, um, that, you know, command tours are three years, mm-hmm. um, that, uh, you know, you, since you don't deploy, you don't base filling organizations uh, 90 days before they, they get out the door like we do now, and which all that does is it enables an organization to go through a very fast-paced, rigorous training plan that gets them to be okay. Mm-hmm. And that's where we are today. <clears throat> it's not anybody's fault, but if I don't have all my company commanders, lieutenants, staff NCOs, NCOs, if I don't have sergeant squad leaders throughout the force for you know 18 months prior to deployment, I'm not going to be able to train the organization to be as excellent as it needs to be to execute the doctrine mm-hmm. the way it's written. Mm-hmm. So that's what we have to do. If, if, and what we also have to do is, you know, like the focus, the main effort, then one of the concepts of the doctrine is the fleet Marine force. Then you figure out what that requires to be successful and everything else pays the bill. Mm-hmm. And if we're not willing to do that, we should just stop talking about how we prioritize the fleet. Cause we don't. Yeah. And you know, we, what we prioritize, what we value principally is headquarters. Mm-hmm. They're big. They got generals in them with parking spots and aids and friggin' PowerPoint galore. And that's what we value. You know, and we don't what we and we shape staff success, but we don't shape success of the squad and the, you know, the, the sergeant and the lieutenant and the staff sergeant. And that's who owns 90 some percent of the Marines that actually are going to close with. Right. right. And destroy. Uh, and so we need to look ourselves in the mirror, and reprioritize our actions. And so, you know, if. That's how I think in, in, in education, I think General Berger is doing a great thing. I mean, I think like our PME program needs to be more rigorous mm-hmm. and we should keep score. Mm-hmm. And so if you're if you went to uh, PME school and, and you know, and, uh, and took the, you know, like the sports scholarship route and didn't really read everything and rigorously apply yourself, there should be a penalty for that. Now, there's a lot of people that don't agree with me on that. Like, hey, that's the break from the fleet. And I'm like, look, this is your profession. Yeah. And if you don't really want to dive into it and be passionate about it, you shouldn't be in the profession. It's too important. And it's not a job. And so, you know, look, I, and I would tell people when I ran EWS, I'm like, people are going to tell you it's a lot of reading. Okay. Number one, it, it's not that much. Okay. And then number two is you're going to do it all. And I can look at you and say you're going to do it all because I've done it all. Yeah. Okay. And that's what I expect of you. You're going to read all this stuff so you can have a, a informed conversation in your small groups that will lead to better understanding of all these concepts and the doctrine and the TTPs. And that's what we want you to walk out the door with. If you don't participate, you, you, know, you have just spent a year here and wasted the Marine Corps' time and the taxpayer money. And so I think, you know, I think we should have uh, exams to get in. Like if you're not, if you're not working on your own professionalism to where you can compete, you know, like 
everybody, all majors have to complete an entry exam for command staff college. Well, let's, you know, there's only 150 seats. So the top 150 scores are in. The yeah. rest of you, tough. Better yeah. luck next year, you know. And you only got about three, you know, opportunities probably, three years to really get in before it really screws up your, your you know, promotion timelines and everything like that. But I think we should make it challenging intellectually as much as we do physically, which we do and are pretty, pretty good at. Um, so, sir, you, uh, you know, I'd like to uh, connect this to the topic of um, you as the CG of second Marine division. So you're talking about intellectual rigor. You're talking about professional development. You during your time as CG create a robust PME program for your staff. Could you talk about that program? What sort of events did you hold? I know you had guest speakers. So, you know, what, what sort of uh, guest speakers would you, would you invite? And beyond all of that, what were the, what were the results from this program? Did you notice a difference? Yeah, well, I, I, I think I would say yes. I, I mean, at, at first, you know, principally you do that as a commander to help you to help your subordinates staff and commanders understand you so that they can interpret your intent to build cohesion within the organization so that was you know to increase your understanding of warfighting you know number one but number two to allow me to impart my ideas to you so you want to understand my intent and Therefore, we are trying to build this organization that can rely on mission command or decentralized command and control because we know how each other thinks. We don't have five years to stay together, so I've got to do it really quick. And th this is a, a method of, of, of doing that. Um, start out with battle studies. We did map problems and we were trying to do it all on division operations because the division, quite frankly, had viewed itself as a force provider for a number of years and not a combat formation. So my principal role, I thought, was to figure out, like, hey, this is how we're going to fight. We get called to fight as 2nd Marine Division anywhere in the world. Here's how we're going to do it. And so as, we talked as about a division, right? As a division. Yeah. And so I always had one regiment training to go relieve another regiment headquarters that was in afghanistan so it was challenging uh to get everybody together and that's you know so the whole thing about the mwx which is a large force on force exercise that we did in november october november of 19 um was designed to actually you know take what we had been talking about and doing map problems and and computer simulated you know war games to see if we could actually do it right yeah, yeah and at scale so that we would learn some of the te the the finger feel the time space factors that affect a large organization and you know uh and i think we performed well at mwx it certainly mm -hmm. you know one like you know we hadn't been together that long and i only had one of my regiments out there and there was one of third marines uh i had three marines four of my infantry battalions, one of my infantry regiments, all my subordinate uh, battalions, 
um, at MLR. And so it was a large, it was 12,000 Marines out there. Wow. Um, and, and that makes it hard. You have to figure out how to move them and deconflict routes and resupply them with fuel and water and chow. And, you know, just learn how to do that is, is, is a good thing to learn. Yeah. because I can tell you when I did, when I was a planner for first Marine division to march up, I mean, it was, it, 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 was, it made my head hurt thinking about how big this organization was and how long it takes to do things. And I had no finger feel mm-hmm. for like, how long does it take to, to uh, refuel a regimental combat team with 1300 vehicles a while. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, <laughs> you, you know, and if you're not going to culminate up by your own, you know, lack of planning or lack of, you know, being able to time in space resources so they meet need, then, you know, that's probably because you're not educated to do that. So there's nowhere in our PME development where we teach division operations. Right. Ever. I mean, Leavenworth has recently started doing that again for the Army, but we don't do that in the Marine Corps. Um, I had people from Leavenworth come out and give us those classes, you know, so that you know, the instructors came and they, you know, and then we were talking and then they, because they were great instructors, one of the focuses was the battle of 73 Easting. Mm-hmm. And that was a larger engagement. I know, but we had all of the senior leaders from the division to the brigade, to the battalion that were talking about that uh, oh. via zoom. And we, you know, we, so, uh, that was a big planning exercise for us. So it was basically starting with uh, my first PME I gave him was a PME that, I mean, my big battle that I studied to help me understand warfare is the Battle of Sedan, France, France 1940. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I got a presentation, which is about 200 some slides of it that I walk them through. And I purposely brought, you know, most of not all the books that are associated with that battle that I've read to show them like, this is what I'm talking about when I talk about self-study. Yeah. Uh, this giant box with 80 books in it. I've read every one of these things, some of these books four and five times. So I can understand what hacks, what happened here yeah. in some depth um, because I don't want somebody telling me, and drawing these conclusions from this battle. So this battle was used to articulate a lot of maneuver warfare theory. Right. I wanted to learn myself so I could make sure that the theory was in fact correct. Yeah. And, and they take a great liberal, uh, you know, cherry picking uh, license with some of this stuff is what you find out. So it's like, okay, I know why they did that, but you know, that's really not what the Germans are saying. Yeah. And I wish I spoke German cause I'd be reading it in the original if I could actually read German, which I can't. Yeah. Um. Sir, so much of, of what you're describing with your approach to training, to you know, excellence in warfighting, inculcating maneuver warfare, you seem to take a modeling approach. You model what you want right. your leaders to be doing. So, hey, I'm going to show you, like we're going to go through a TDG together, or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run you through this PME program. The hope, the expectation is you get something out of it, but beyond that, you now have a model, you now have some, some sense of what I would like to see you be doing with your own units. Is that, is that a correct? No, uh, it's absolutely right. I mean, I think, you know, that's what general Zinni was doing with combat concepts. I mean, he's teaching us the way he views warfare, but he's also modeling by doing it a way 
that you can prepare yourself to be a commander sure. and how you might do it if you're commanding an organization. And I think, so I tried a similar approach. Uh, I'm not saying I'm, you know, general Zinni, I'm not, I mean, but I mean, I just, you, you do the best you can with what you got. Right. Um, and you hope that, you know, the hope is that you're creating a spark in these folks like Zinni creating you yeah. for me and that, that will like the rising tide lifts all boats because an organization the size of a division is so large, you can't get it all together all the time. And so you have to influence it in these discrete ways to try to make it better. Now, I wish I'd had, you know, I I wish that my last eight months was not impacted by COVID. I wish that I would have had a third year. I mean, I, um, I, you know, but you don't, you just do what you can while you're there. And, and then, you know, you learn from it, you move on. If you get another opportunity to command, you know, you, you try to do it better next time. Yeah. I, I also recall, cause I, th- I was there for part of it. I, I had some work down in uh, Lejeune, but I remember you brought in John Schmidt to talk um, recognition prime decision making and a, a different approach to planning other than McPeepee. If I'm right. If I'm and then we did, then we did exercises using yeah. utilizing that approach. Uh, I just want like, and, and I, I still maintain that at the division level and below McPeepee, I mean, it's good for uh, approach for, you know, uh, when you have no time limit, but you know, the, the whole process of planning or coming up with a solution to a tactical problem at the division and below level has to result in an order, mm-hmm. you know? It's the whole Von Sect quote, you know, a decision born of thought, an order for action, the execution itself. Yeah. And so you got to get good at assessing a situation and could the, and coming up with a solution and then be able to articulate that in an order that will get everybody focused in the right direction. And then you need to execute. Right. And so that makes sense. I mean, we, we brought Don Vandegrift down to do, you know, to teach, uh, basically to teach, you know, how to use decision forcing cases and, and building judgment and, 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 and being able to operationalize mission command. And then, you know, John Schmidt on recognitional planning model. Right. Uh, right. And then, you know, we brought scales in to talk about future war. Yeah, and then, um, you know, brought Chris Bros in to talk about the kill chain, which is a book that he wrote. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, people I know I'd bring in and then, but a lot of it's like we gave classes on the division and the attack. That was the Leavenworth PME. That was a week long that we did. Then I gave a class division in the defense, which I developed just by looking at, you know, I just did on my own, gave it to my own. And then we did a a defensive practical exercise. Yeah. Um, And then, you know, we focused on, we had MLR, uh, to give you know division logistics you know we had a pme on cas evacuation mm-hmm. um you know how we're going to do a p- procedures like that we we figured out we needed more time so we developed this whole blood transfusion model that now is kind of being shared across the marine corps but it was literally up, like we're not going to be able to do this in the golden hour we're going to have to be guys live longer this is the only way to do it and then we taught people how to do that wow you know? so uh that was you know, the mindset, uh, you know, I think, you know, I was pleased with the performance at uh, MWX, which I think was a, like kind of the final exercise, supposedly. But, you know, we were going to we were supposed to do another big exercise 
in the spring that got canceled. I was supposed to do a, a staff ride of the Yorktown campaign got canceled. We were supposed to do amphibious staff planning for the whole staff at Little Creek um, got canceled. Um, so, you know. Yeah. It's, I mean, you, you certainly had professional development and, um, you know, development of, of this warfighting excellence that you talk about on the mind and, and with, uh, with the staff, how did you encourage that same sort of development throughout the rest of the division? What, you know, what was your guidance to your regimental commanders, the battalions as to how they went about internal PME? Well, I mean, I, you know, I talked to them about it when they would, you know, come aboard. I mean, I would also do welcome aboards about every two months for everybody coming into the division. Here's my, you know, here's how this place works. These are my priorities, you know, that kind of stuff. But every commander, you know, I had a one-on-one and some of those things would last two or three hour in call. Yeah. And we would talk about these issues and I would say, here's what you, you're, you're going to do. I need you to develop a plan. It should nest with mine. Mm-hmm. You are going to be the prime instructor of your unit and battalion. And then you just look at schedules and pop in on people and see if they're actually doing it. Yeah. yeah. And they were, they, you know, they, and then a lot of guys came up with some really very, their own uh, really uh, neat stuff. And, and so, the, I mean, that's all you, you want, to give them the latitude to do that. And I, at first I was doing two division ones a month. And then it, after MWX, it was one a month, but you wanted to give more time back to subordinate commanders because you wanted them to do at least one or two a month. So my point is if you're in peacetime training, you should probably be doing some kind of thing like that at some level, you know, you know, once a week. Yeah. Like if the division's doing it once a month and the regiment's doing it once a month, the battalion probably can do it twice a month. Companies are doing it as part of their developing their leaders during the week, different day. I mean, and so you're really, you know, the division is a big school yeah. as well as a fighting organization. It needs to have that mindset. You, you know, you mentioned the division as, as a school, how, you know, you were the director of EWS, you were at TBS, you were at IOC. How, how much of those experiences have shaped you as a commander? Oh, yeah. But I mean, they, they were hugely formative. Yeah. Uh, particularly uh, uh, TBS and IOC as a, you know, you're a brand new captain and you're, you're, I mean, it takes probably to be a pro at this. I mean, it takes, I don't know, six, eight years, yeah. uh, maybe 10 uh, of devotion. And then, you know, I mean, when you become a field grade officer, you've had company command experience, you've been to career level school, you've, you've had a B billet. Mine was, you know, tactically oriented. And then you have four or five years in the operating force as a lieutenant. I mean, you're developing all this as you, and reps and sets the whole way. So mm-hmm. I think, um, you know, it, it takes time uh, and I'm still learning stuff. I mean, I, I read all, I mean, I'm reading and now I'm reading everything I can get my hands on about China mm-hmm. and uh, fighting at sea uh, yeah. with the Navy. So if we could uh, talk a little more about the MWX. So you, you, you shared your thoughts on how the exercise went overall, but what, you know, what surprised you most? What, what happened 
the way you expected it? What concerned you? Just looking to get a, a, a deeper look at your observations from that exercise. Well, I will tell you that uh, one fighting for four days with no air cover uh, sucks. So, I mean, I, would, I can imagine you almost can't operate. Uh, you have to be very, you know, sneaky. You have to, you know, um, you got to hug restrictive terrain. You got to reduce unnecessary movement because anything in the overhead picks up movement before it picks up anything else. The other thing is an over, like when, then we had ISR and air. I mean, I had, you know, gray eagles, shadows, stalkers, RQ, you know, reapers, J stars, fixed wing aviation with pods and stuff. And for two days, look to see, to find out the disposition of seventh Marines and could, could not do it. I, when they move vehicles and things that were moving, you could pick them up like that mm. and then you could strike them. But the disposition, how they were laid out, defend the ground, they, they hugged really nasty terrain, didn't move and we couldn't find them. And, and this is with all of these. All of that. Assets. Wow. So my point is it's a soda straw sensors have limitations sure. and really what they're good at is picking up movement and if you use low tech you know cami nets and you you have discipline good light noise movement discipline it it'll be very difficult for those folks to find you and this is in an open desert yeah, yeah. what a, a jungle would be like there's nothing that we have that's going to look through vegetation so and to my knowledge nothing out there right now yeah so if you can be, you know, in the veggies with good concealment, noise and light discipline, don't be moving um, or, or move when some of these means aren't on station and understanding when you're vulnerable, when you're not. Right. Uh, the enemy will struggle to find you and understand your disposition yeah. and composition, which will make his job. So what I wanted to do, you know, I got attacked for four days and they reset them. And we held all the restrictive terrain passes that would have allowed them to get into, you know, Gypsum Ridge, Range 230, Hidalgo City, and all the, and, and, you know, the, which was what they were trying to seize. Yeah. And then if it would have, like, like we, st like, like the first night we got attacked all day. We, we thwarted an, uh, a, uh, a uh, air assault into it and and we're, we're doing well and so it, now it's like 2 30 in the morning and we've kind of repelled the last kind of and and my three turns to me he goes sir we should counterattack right now and he's right we should have the only yeah. reason i didn't do it is i was worried about running over a fucking kid you know sleeping someplace that we couldn't see or sense with a tank or an av or an lav but yeah. you know what you know the, the ability okay we've just taken his best shot He's trying to regroup. I don't want him to regroup. Right. I'm going to go after him. But because, you know, safety and some artificialities, you, you sit there, you repeat it, you know, they attack you all the next day and the day after that. And then you're going to go to a counterattack. But because, well, first of all, we had a, a pause X for an AR, which we shouldn't do in the middle of an exercise. I don't give a shit. It's not worth it. And then 
Um, but in the, the transition from O to D is thing, you know, it's a, it's a fluid type of experience and we need to train to that. Like when you, when you've just taken a guy's best punch, but you're still holding the train and he's regrouping, don't let him regroup, be on his ass. I mean, you should, that's when he's most vulnerable for a variety of reasons. And I knew that and sort of my three and we're like, we should do this. I'm thinking, and we could really screw these guys up if we just took third Marines and came all the way, which is what we did when we counterattacked anyway. But really when the counterattack was a move to contact, we never made contact because mm. I couldn't find out where these guys were. Yeah. Sir, you've, you've got a lot of experience now, I think, uh, with these force on force free play exercises. Are there downsides to these things? And, and if so, what are they and how do you try to overcome or mitigate? Yeah, I think, you know, first of all, you always need a, a, a good ad for, you know, we, we created an ad for company that was modeled off of the, you know, Russian little green men kind of irregular warfare with regular warfare combination. And we did that because we're O-Plan linked to that theater. So that's who we were going to fight. But you need a, a real, like you have at NTC. You know, they do it kind of right at NTC. The other thing you need is to be able to adjudicate direct, indirect fires better and, and, and in real time. So you don't lose, like you can put a thousand observer controllers out there with a great radio net, but they're, they're, there's still latency in that. Sure. What, I, what you need is systems that, and this is where you just go to, you know, Saab or, some of the companies that do this and say, look, what I want is I want every vehicle outfitted. I want every weapon system outfitted. I want, you know, constant feedback because that's what you lack. You know, if you, if you shoot, if I shoot you with a 50 cal, really, you, and I hit you, you know it. There's no doubt if you were hit, uh, you fucking go down. Okay. Um, If I, if I uh, have good target acquisition I have, you know, I got a good target location and I do a good fire mission and I fire a battery too and it lands on you, you know it. Mm-hmm. You're either killed, suppressed, neutralized, something. And that's what we have to be better at, the effects of action. And, and I think they do it. I mean, how they've evolved it at NTC is it's, it's all based on cell phone towers and systems are computerized links. So if I call that and that goes in, you know, there's a something that's sent out to the ECR that grid. And if you happen to be in it with any receiver, your, you know, your light goes off, the buzzer goes off, you're affected real time. Yeah. Everything, every vehicle has sensors on it and lasers that uh, allow you to, to activate them. So, you know, our problem, you know, observer controllers are nice and you should have them to, understand things like orders processes and you know the uh, the thing the eye in this but you need good ad- fast reliable adjudication in order to bring these combat effects into the decision making and then the adjustment of what uh, that didn't work i got to do something else what is it time now let's go and when you can get to that level then your decision making you're getting i mean it's almost like real war except nobody's really getting killed yeah, because sure. if your buzzer goes off and you have to medevac the guy and he's got, you know, and all that is happening, 
vehicles kind of get recovered, you know, I mean, then the experience is deep. Mm -hmm. The learning is immense. The cognitive games that you're going through is, is, is really well developed. The problem is if it's not like that, then it can kind of get to be a little bit of who shot John and, you know, kids playing games around the house and it, it can be negative learning. You can learn the wrong things from some of that. Sure. And that's not good either. So in the whole scheme, I mean, I think if you're doing it right, I mean, you're, you're probably 60, 40 live fire to cog, you know, to force on force. Mm-hmm. Um, because these hard skills, you've got to get guys comfortable. Like some as simple as fire and movement, you know, I'm moving and you're firing right off to my side. I got to get used to that. If I know I can do it safely, the more repetitions I do, it builds confidence. It builds, you know, <clears throat> it also builds speed uh, and tempo of actually executing the, you know, the, the technique. And the more you do it, the better you are at it. The more confidence you have that you can actually do that, that's a combat multiplier. Now, the leader has to employ that in the right circumstances, at the right time, at the right place. And those are all decisions that, you know, you learn to make in force on force that have, and then you learn the, the positive or negative fallout of those decisions. And that creates better judgment down the road. So you got to have both especially at the squad platoon company level, most of this stuff is live fire and then augmented by, you know, force on force. Mm-hmm. I'd like to make force on force available at home station training. So you could do it more often at different levels. So you could create those cognitive sets and reps more frequently. And then you need to add stuff that like, or, or you know, decision forcing cases, those, uh, those kits they have with the computers at the barracks that the Marines like to, to use. Um, but, uh, you know, the, all of that is, you know, you, you, you need to utilize, you know, and we need to make it easier and more accessible. Like when you want to do a, a Spartan shield or a Spartan or a Spartan, whatever exercise and you want to have a division with two regimental headquarters and all the response cells, these things ought to be pre-made so that you can just kind of fall in them, execute for three days, come out, get the ARs, focus on decision-making without building all the products. Mm -hmm. Because that's where you get your staff bandwidth will just, it'll crush you. And, you know, so the, 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 the trained man and equipped folks from TCOM need to create those things for you so you can use it and they can do some of the work. So they give you your order. You've got two hours. You got to issue it out. People got to execute. You start running the game. You got to, you know, adjust, give orders on the fly. That's reality. And that's what we got to be training our guys to understand and do. And so, you know, at the regimental and division level in meth, those are all most of them is going to be uh, it's going to be computer based, right? Cause you can't get those size units out there that frequently, but every once in a while you had to put the whole regiment in the field, you yeah. know, you got to put the whole division in the field and because you're not really learning, everybody's not learning the time and space factors until you have to actually do this. And it's tough to do this. And, you know, we look at like 
desert storm and it's a four day war. And we, we talk about, um, general franks who had the seventh corps and you know he, he was slow and man, blah, blah, and everybody gets on his ass you know he had his corps in the field for four days i mean give him a break you know if you look at world war ii you know north africa was a shit show at the beginning because guys didn't know how to fight yeah. we didn't know how to fight and at, especially at that level we had never done that even though the louisiana maneuvers were probably some of the best force on force you know that the united states armed forces have ever done mm-hmm. um you know that was you know now you're fighting the germans it's a different ball game and you're going to need what you want in that is that the learning curve is not vertical right okay it it's it you know the more you do in peacetime training you're still going to have a learning curve because it's just different when it's for real right but you want it to be a slope that you can handle okay and then over time, you learn how to get better at this. And then, you know, a couple engagements, you're, you're, you're hitting on all cylinders. And now it's just, you know, how fresh are your people? You got to rotate guys that are burned out. And then over the, 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 the length of the, uh, the tour or the, the war, if it's like that. But, you know, you read Army at Dawn trilogy. Yeah, Rick Atkinson. You know, it's, it's replete with you know, amateurs fighting professionals and it not working out very well. Yeah. So I know we're, we're coming up on time, but I wanted to, I wanted to save some time um, to talk about your, your current uh, position and some of the work you're doing there. So you're at plans, policy and uh, operations, PPNO, you're the assistant deputy commandant. Um, What are the key challenges for the Marine Corps as, as an institution, you know, given your particular perch your your vantage point well i think uh number one you know uh, understanding what force design impacts are going to be to the service and then you know we still have global force commitments around the globe and we're trying to transition the entire marine corps really to a new not only a new way of fighting but a new organization at the same time you're doing tight model series uh, with uh, our aviation component you know in tac air uh, heavy lift. Um, and you know, that's difficult. So when you do that transition, you go from 53 E to 53 K that squadron comes offline. It's a two year process to bring it back online to wherever. So it's operational. Well, that means you have less squadrons. You still have requirements to go out there and, 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 and deploy for real world contingencies and operations. And then you just have less of that available while you're doing that. We're going to be doing that with, you know, one, three will be uh, coming offline and form the foundation of third MLR. And we're going to stand up fourth MLR and 12th MLR. And, you know, all that, you know, first MLR be stood up at least, you know, IOC in 23. And then, so as we do this, we just have less forces to do the day-to-day things the service is required to do. The other thing is, you know, we're going to fight in all these op plans, but we're going to fight differently. And so we have to educate uh, co- combatant commanders and, and MAR4 commanders on, hey, don't offer this. Here's how we're going to do this in the future. And we're still learning what that actually means. So we're kind of flying the plane while we're building it. Yeah. And, and so it's um, challenging to the, the tyranny of the mundane things that the, you know, the joint staff and, you know, the DOD expect us to do while at the same time changing everything. 
you know, we're, we're talking about massive changes in you know, training and education, manpower, you know, physically, you know, the way we are organized and equipped. So there's just lots going on. And we're, our job is to make sure that the trains run on time and that we meet all these requirements. And as we go forward, it'll get more challenging to do that for the institution. So you mentioned training and education a few times in there, and there are you know, big, uh, I think, changes coming to, to that part of the Marine Corps. Where would you like to see PME and, and training go? You've talked a little bit about um, making force on force uh, more widespread, uh, give, give units the ability to conduct it. Uh, it sounds like in larger, in larger units, you know, battalions, regiments at their home station, um, but where, you know, given all of these big changes taking place within the Marine Corps with Force Design 2030 and how the Marine Corps is going to fit differently in uh, joint plans, where do you think, where do you think PME and training should, should head? Well, I think, you know, we, they throw the term out like 21st century, not industrial age. And, you know, and I'm not saying I'm skeptical when I hear terms like that. It's like, okay, what do you mean by 21st century training and education? Yeah. But first of all, you got to find what you're talking about. And I, to my, to, to the point, I, I don't think we've adequately done that. Um, second thing is you got to resource it. And, we're, you know, if you're, if we're not going to ask for more, for more money, we're going to be resource challenged to do some of the things that we want to do. And if, if you believe that defense budget, if people say it's going down, what I'd say is, well, look, you know, starting in 2007, when I became, you know, house director, um, or 2008, when I became house director, uh, everybody's been saying, you know, OCO's going away next year, and the defense budget is going to get smaller. And we're, we still have OCO, it's 2020, and the defense budget has only grown over that period of time. So while I well, I'm like, I agree there are fiscal pressures that one would think would lead to a lower defense budget. We'll see. Yeah. Um, you know, I think if the, if the defense budget, uh, uh, our, our stake in it may grow simply because, you know, as you know, this becomes a Navy Air Force fight and we become part of the Naval, more integrated with the Naval service, um, that will resonate and it should translate into uh, more fiscal resources to do things that we want to do, but uh, to change our training completely is going to take money. Sure. So we have to figure, you know, all this out. We're doing that right now. There's lots of studies going on. Uh, the institution is working hard to achieve the commandant's vision, um, and everybody's growing. Yeah. So my point is, I think you know, man, like we have, we we need to totally revamp our manpower model. Mm-hmm. But that scares everybody. Of course, yeah. You know, because it's like, you know, we say mature the force. What does that mean? Well, if you go from historically we re-enlist, you know, like around almost 20% of our FTAP first term accessions uh, cohort uh, and we make them career Marines. Uh, If you double that, to say 40%, like the other services, like the Air Force, the Navy, and the Army approach, well, that means you don't need to bring 35,000 new Marines in every year. So there are some benefits to that for the institution. 
but that force costs more a little bit, but you save money on training. So again, we have to figure this out. Like, what do we want? Yeah. And I think if you want staff sergeants as squad leaders and sergeants as team leaders, um, if you think you're getting there by just saying that without totally reworking the way that you do talent management within the organization and your manning model totally being changed, you're kidding yourself. It's not going to happen. You're just going to have, yeah, the, the bill says staff sergeant, but it's a sergeant in there and not all of those are, I mean, I, no one worked any harder to put sergeants in front of squads. Um, you know, I had 243 squads in second division. I wanted 243 sergeants in front of them. And the most I ever had was 115. Wow. Where were all those? I mean, were you just lacking the other? I'm lacking sergeants. I'm lacking in time to get sergeants to school, to get them appropriately trained. Right. Um, Yeah. All the above. So it's, uh, that's why I talk about your manning model is central to your ability to execute and fight the way you want to fight. It's like you, that's job one. You got to figure that out. And we have one where, we're the youngest service. It's by design. We, we bring in 35,000 new Marines a year. We push them through a training pipeline. So when you do that, you have to optimize your training pipeline. That takes a lot of your sergeants and staff sergeants off of the, out of the operating forces and in the training pipeline. Yeah. Yeah. So they're just not there. They're recruiters. They're drill instructors. They're right. on MP duty. Um, and so what you have to do is you, you got to say, well, this is what has to happen. Here's my Manning. How do I get there and solve that problem? We haven't done that as a service. Yeah. So, Sir, final question. Uh, do you have any parting shots or thoughts for our listeners? Well, I would say, you know, uh, if you, in the profession of arms, there's a 5,000 year recorded history of this profession. Um, you need to study it. And it requires a lot of time and a lot of reading and a lot of discussion with your peers. And if you're not willing to pay that price, uh, there are other professions that you probably should go into. But the, the, the men and women of the Armed Forces of the United States expect their leaders to be experts. And if you're not, you're a liability. And so I would just challenge all those folks out there that, uh, that, that want to be great leaders in, in, within the department in the Marine Corps and specifically, you got to study your profession. You got to get your head in the books. You got to talk about it a lot. It should be a passion for you. And if it's not, you need to look in the mirror and determine whether you want to continue to serve or not. Cause there's other things you can do with your life that are probably pay you more money and have less uh, impact on the nation writ large. Sir. Awesome conversation. I'm really looking forward to uh, sharing this with the society and, um, Yeah. Thanks so much for your time. Yeah. Glad to be here. Thank you, David. Thank you, sir. We'll be in touch. Yep. Out of here. All right. Bye-bye.